Good morning. Our Bible reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 13. So I'll begin to read at 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Paul could uh, never be accused of, in any sense, self-peddling the demands and the challenges of gospel ministry. And his letters make that perfectly clear. And it is very, very obvious that as both Timothy and the entire church at Ephesus listened to this letter being read, they would be made aware of what their pastor was supposed to be doing, what their pastor was experiencing, and what it would mean for them as a congregation to support the pastor in his ministry. Hence, I guess, the importance of the first of those three opportunities that are before you uh, here to consider the nature of leadership. But it's important to recognize that Paul does not put the issue of suffering in the small print. We saw it yesterday in verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel. We're about to see it here in chapter 2, 
And by the time he gets to chapter 5, one of his exhortations to him is to endure suffering. It's important to ask then the question, wherever did we get the idea that is still abounding, that if a person has real faith, uh, that individual need not suffer and perhaps should not suffer. One of the tests of that kind of thinking is to ask of it, how would that work or how did that work for the Lord Jesus? And of course, that story does not work for the Lord Jesus. And, and since Paul is executing a ministry along the lines of Jesus, it doesn't work for him either. And it is this that he makes clear at what is the end of chapter 1 in our English translations. I gave a heading to these closing verses, uh, simply desertion and devotion, desertion and devotion. And you may like to think of which side of this equation you find yourself on as you have responsibilities and privileges perhaps in your own local church. The birth of the church in Ephesus was exciting, it was dramatic, and the growth was significant. But it wasn't all plain sailing. Paul had warned of that. You read of it in the Acts before he left the elders at Ephesus gathering with them on the beach on that famous occasion when they wept at the thought of never seeing him again. And you remember he said to them, you need to be very, very careful because after my departure, there will be fierce wolves that will arise among yourselves to seek to draw people away after them. And so there were detractors and there were those who would have made uh, the ministry of Timothy a dispiriting experience, and there were some who clearly exercised positions of leadership. I would imagine that is why uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes are mentioned in this way. In fact, Paul says that there was a wholesale desertion of those who were in the region of Asia. Now, whether this is hyperbole uh, added to by the fact of his imprisonment and so on, uh, or whether it is just exactly that, it is clear that as he reflects upon the situation, he thinks it is wise to point it out to Timothy because he is going to face similar circumstances. Uh, you know, they say, don't they, that all publicity is apparently good publicity, but I'm not so sure about that in relationship to these two characters here in verse 15. What a, what a sad thing to find your way into the record of Holy Scripture as a defector. And against that dark background, the devotion of this man, Onesiphorus, stands out dramatically. Onesiphorus. May the Lord bless the household of Onesiphorus. I, I wonder what is all involved in that. Perhaps Onesiphorus was often out in the evening. Perhaps he was engaged in the encouraging help of a lay, a lay elder. And uh, Paul recognizes that when that takes place, the family uh, shares that burden with the person who extends himself in that way. And perhaps it is along those lines that he says, as I think of him, I don't think of him in isolation, for none of us lives to ourselves or dies to ourselves. And there are always our wives and children and loved ones that are there too. So may the Lord bless the household of Onesiphorus, because look at what he did for me. He often refreshed me. 
He didn't just show up once and say something nice, but there was a continual element whereby his impact on Paul left a mark, which if you like, put it air in Paul's balloon rather than sucking the air out of the balloon. And uh, that is why I say out of some many years now of pastoral ministry, if you can find a good Onesiphorus, uh, make sure you hold on to him. He often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. It's uh, fun to be in the company of those who are doing well, who are notorious for good things and in good ways. Uh, Prison ministry is a different kind of ministry, and Onesiphorus was happy to be involved. He was not ashamed of my chains, and he didn't just poke around a little bit, but he searched for me earnestly, a bit like uh, a gentleman looking for his wife in Marks and Spencer's on an afternoon in Glasgow. Uh, You can either stand outside and wonder, or you can go in and search diligently. And so he searched for me diligently. He searched for me earnestly until he found me. He didn't just have a look and say, I was looking for you, but I didn't find you. No, he did it until he found me. And he says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. It's possible that uh, Onesiphorus has already died. And he's saying, "Uh, may he know all the blessings and joy of his well done. And he says, finally, and you also know, Timothy, all the service that he rendered for me at Ephesus. So in other words, here is an individual who, against the background of a kind of wholesale desertion, stands out as a devoted soul. He, if you like, had gone to a great deal of trouble in order that he might provide a great deal of comfort to the imprisoned apostle. So God bless him, and God bless his family. As I was reading this, I remembered something in my files and went to find it. It's a very long quote, and I've abbreviated it, but it had to do with something that I found. Uh, I think I was visiting a a church somewhere, and I found it in a vestibule. I can't actually recall, but it concerned a man with the memorable name of Mr. Smith, and it, it, it was a record that had been written by the vicar of uh, the death of Mr. Smith and the impact that it had left. I was so struck by it that I scribbled it all down, and part of what the minister said was this. A great blank was created in the church by his death. A Sabbath morning without his kindly visit to the vestry was difficult to imagine. He left behind him the fragrance of an honorable name and a cherished memory. Kind of Onesiphoronian in some measure, isn't it? If you're going to live to be missed, be missed for the right thing. I remember when I was a student sitting in church and listening to the minister then, whom I loved passionately and admired greatly. And he explained on one occasion how, as he was teaching through a passage similar to this, although not this one, he had gone back into the minutes of his deacon's meetings over a long period of time. He was searching for something, not for what he found, but what he found was a recurring note, not from an Onesiphorus, but from somebody at the opposite end of the spectrum from Onesiphorus. I'll invent his name. We'll call him Mr. Jones. And he came on it again and again. 
At our meeting, we discussed X. There was a strong opinion that this was the right way to go. Mr. Jones wanted his opposition to be minuted. <clears throat> a few weeks later, Mr. Jones wanted his opposition to be minuted. He has left a legacy. He's gone. But when we remember Mr. Jones, we remember his opposition. It is always right to take on challenges and causes and to identify our concerns within the framework of leadership. But I guard you against becoming a Mr. Jones, and I suggest that you might fancy the name Onesiphorus as a nickname. You find a similar emphasis, don't you, in George Eliot's Middlemarch, where in amazing passage, uh, commenting on the impact of an individual, Eliot writes, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you as they might have been, is in part owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Most of us will not even be a history, a footnote in history. But they will come and see where we lie and the legacy that we've left them, by God's grace and mercy, hopefully, will be in the devotion and not in the desertion column. Now, he moves on from there. He moves from this uh, uh, wonderful encouragement that is there in Onesiphorus to come back then to his exhortations to Timothy. So having dealt with desertion and with devotion, he now outlines for Timothy, Timothy the part that he is going to play in seeing the gospel built into subsequent generations. And as a father in the faith, he is reminding Timothy of the resources that are his in fulfilling the requirements. So then, my child or my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, as we said yesterday, it is important and it's vitally important. I wish I'd learned this as a much younger man. It is vitally important to make sure that our exhortations to activity are grounded in the grace of God, which enables the very activity to which we are exhorting one another. And Paul does this marvelously, doesn't he? Strengthened by the grace. He, of course, understood it in a dramatic way. We don't take time to cross-reference ourselves in 2 Corinthians, but you will remember how in this dramatic encounter with God, he came to the point where he said, well then, Lord, if that's the case, if, if uh, dependence is the objective, which it is, then I understand that weakness may well prove to be an advantage. And so then, since you have promised me that, your, that my strength is only mine as a result of your grace and that your grace is made perfect in my weakness, then most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that Christ's power may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Note to self, you said you wouldn't cross-reference it and you just did. I apologize, but you can follow it up on your own. You're sensible people. There's no attempt to bolster Timothy's self-esteem 
There's none of this stuff that you get horribly in America. Come on, you're terrific. You're a great guy. This is going well, da-da-da-da-da. And it makes you so wretchedly miserable because you know none of it is true. If you are tempted to believe it, your wife will take care of any such notion. <laughs> there is no attempt to bolster his self-esteem. No, he does this all the time. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Strengthened with all power, Colossians 1, according to his glorious might for endurance and for patience, the provision of strength for the fulfillment of the divine strategy. What now is this divine strategy? What is Paul's succession plan? How is this gospel to be both preserved and then to be passed on? Well, there are four generations in view in his comment here, from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to faithful men, or to reliable people, and then from those faithful, reliable people, others also. And again, he points it out that uh, this gospel is not Paul's gospel. It wasn't invented by a man. He didn't receive it from a man. He wasn't taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's very, very important to keep this in mind, that this gospel is by way of divine revelation that Paul has not just come up with a very interesting philosophy of life or a strategy for making sense of human existence. No, he was diametrically opposed to this Jesus of Nazareth and has been radically changed by him. In the same vein, actually, the apostles emphasize it, don't they? We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes, C.H., C.H. Spurgeon, talking about the gospel, says, I am sure it is God's gospel, for nobody could have invented it. A plan so just to God, so safe to man, and I am all the more sure it is God's gospel because there are many that hate it. Now, this gospel is not a hidden secret. You've heard it, says Paul to Timothy. You've heard me talk about it in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy and all subsequent Timothys could then be charged with this responsibility. The context, of course, changes. We're not living in Ephesus. Today we're in uh, Keswick. But while context historically and geographically changes, the content of the gospel doesn't change. Well, you say, but we need to try and contextualize ourselves. And of course we do, and we do. Paul did addressing the Athenians and uh, many ways in which Jesus did the exact same thing. But the control on our attempts to build those bridges must be the gospel itself so that all our endeavors and attempts at contextualization need to be both informed by and governed by the gospel itself. We cannot contextualize ourselves into the point where that becomes our entire hermeneutic. For those of you who don't know what I just said, don't worry about it. The fact is that these faithful men that he is going to be entrusting this gospel to need to be both convinced and at the same time competent. Convinced and competent. He comes back to it when he writes to Titus. He says, these are the fellows that you're looking for. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught 
so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, there you go again, and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. So when you're passing this on, Timothy, uh, these individuals need to be clear about the source of the gospel, about the substance of the gospel, and about the importance of the spread of the gospel. And I hope you will be prepared to acknowledge that here we have, if you like, the only apostolic succession that is recognized by the Bible. It's not the establishment of an institution, but it is the transmission of a message. It is not the passing on of human authority, but it is the gospel itself which is being passed on, the gospel that is now found for us in the New Testament. No easy task, and therefore Paul's reinforcement of the call not only to proclaim it, but to suffer for it. Now, as we look at this familiar section, I wrote in my notes as a heading, simply discipleship in 3D. Discipleship in 3D. Uh, The three metaphors that Paul provides offer encouragement uh, to anyone looking for an approach to the Christian life that is either soft or lazy. Anybody who thinks it's a soft option has not looked at the example of Jesus or of the apostles. And what Paul is essentially saying to him is along those lines. The Lord Jesus suffered, I am suffering, and you will suffer too. Plan on it. And so he provides these pictures. There are three more to follow, but at this point, just the three. And in each of them, you will notice that there is an absolute commitment to an objective, or if you like, to a valued goal. And without that commitment, there will be no victory, no medal, no harvest. So where are these deeds? Well, the first D is for devotion, the devotion of a soldier, the devotion of a soldier. I'm told that the dropout rate among recruits for the armed forces is pretty high for all kinds of reasons, but not least of all, because the individuals underestimate the commitment and the focus that's involved in making it through just the basic training. I was interested in the spectator of of last month uh, to read an article under the heading, Why Nobody Wants to Join the Army This Year. So that not only are people finding it difficult to make it through basic training if they get in, but now the article is suggesting that there is a whole generation that has no interest in the army at all, and that the recruiting goals are off by 23%. This is in America. The observation was our elite's culture war has targeted the very American individuals who were traditionally bound in that direction. Perhaps Glenn will have something to say along those lines. I don't know. Now, what is he to do? Well, you're to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. In other words, he says you need to resist the entanglements that would interfere with your desire to submit to Jesus as the captain of your salvation. So, uh, when training is called, you will be at training. When exercise is called for, you will be at exercise. And when you are out on uh, sorties, uh, then you will give yourself entirely to it. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and acknowledge uh, what a dramatic change has taken place once again 
uh, in the course of many of our lives. I'm not so sure that I have heard anybody singing um, any songs that have uh, the war motif in them for quite a long time, vis-a-vis onward Christian soldiers marching unto war. There's something about this uh, disinterest in warfare itself contributing in some measure to a disinterest in the idea that the Christian is involved, as the Westminster Confession of Faith states, in a continual and irreconcilable war. I had sat and thought about it a little bit this morning, and so many songs came to mind, I'd like to sing them for you now. But I won't. Uh, for example, sound the battle cry, see the foe is nigh. Raise the standard high for the Lord. Or, as a nine-year-old boy in the Crusader class in suburban Glasgow, singing uh, the Crusader song. It's not perfect theology, but it goes like this. The Lord hath need of me. He doesn't really, but he chooses to involve us. The Lord hath need of me. We'll let that pass. His soldier I must be. He gave his life, my soul to win. And so I need to follow him and serve him faithfully. And though the road be fierce and long, I'll carry on. He makes me strong. And then one day, his face I'll see, and all the joy when he says to me, well done, thou good crusader. Which, of course, they've completely messed up just about the whole song because it doesn't really rhyme to finish, well done, thou good urban saint. (laughs) Now, this emphasis is not here alone. When he writes elsewhere, the paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 7 by uh, Peterson. I want you to live as free of complications as possible because this world, as you see it, is on its way out. This is a short journey. All flesh is like grass and the glory of man. The wind will blow over the grave and we will be gone. And so what is he actually saying? He's saying that every dimension of life, our human relationships, our material possessions, our temporal activities... If we're going to take seriously this, then it means at least this, that all of these things and more besides should be prioritized in relationship to the Lord Jesus who has enlisted us to serve and has called us to express the devotion of a soldier. McShane died at 29, but he had written before he died, when this passing world is done, and when has sunk yon yonder sun, you know, not till then, O Lord, I will find out how much I actually owed you. That's the first D, the devotion of the soldier. The second is the discipline of the athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, the emphasis here is not upon self-imposed rules of discipline, which, of course, is part and parcel of anyone who becomes an athlete. As you can see, I know very little about that. But it is an emphasis on the regulations that are to be obeyed by all who take part in the race. I mean, you can't just show up and race. You need one of those bibs. You need an entry form. You need... You know, you need, and then when you get there, you have to do what they tell you. 
I mean, you can't just jump two and a half feet and say that you're a high jumper. And uh, although I, I suppose you're a very poor high jumper, it would be fair to say that. Classically, 1997-1998, a Canadian sprinter by the name of Ben Johnson set consecutive world records in the 100 meters. You may remember that. Only subsequently to have them rescinded because he broke the rules. And having broken the rules, there was no world medal. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's making clear to Timothy that he's not asking Timothy to do anything that he himself is not actually doing, or in his case, has not actually done. He has not only fought the fight, but he has also finished the race. And so he's saying to Timothy, and I want to make sure that you finish also. I won't delay on this, but this kind of emphasis, which is a biblical emphasis, challenges the kind of casual lawlessness that is alive and well in contemporary evangelicalism, at least in the circles in which I move. A casual lawlessness that is in part due to failing to understand, or worse still, failing to obey the instruction. People move uncomfortably in their chairs whenever we think about the place of the law of God in the life of the Christian. And we understand that the Christian is not under law as a way of justification. But the Westminster Confession of Faith is very helpful in this regard as well when it says, the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of men and women to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Requires to be done. Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? Requirements. Not ten suggestions. Purity, purity, honesty, God-honoring faithfulness. The psalmist understood this, and that's why he's able to say, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. That's what I want to tell young people. The idea of freedom in some or another, just being able to do what you want, or that freedom in Christ means a kind of sanctified form of doing what you want. Break the rules about moral purity. Break the rules about selfish preoccupation and so on. No, 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 no. God does not justify those whom he does not sanctify. God's glad obedience to the law of God is simply our logical act of worship. Submit your bodies to the Lord, which is your reasonable act of Christian service. How would I know what to do? Not on the basis of my feelings, but on the basis of what is said. You want to be an athlete in the in the team where Jesus is the captain, then he points out, don't get involved in civilian pursuits. Make sure your aim is simply to please the one who enlisted him. Because there is no crown unless that happens. The third D is diligence, uh, the diligence of the farmer. And no overnight results, unless, of course, you are a dairy farmer. But uh, by and large, Arable farming is a, is a real challenge. When you come to a farmer, you realize there's none of the drama associated with being a soldier. You don't get a big uniform. You can't run around with, uh, 
with a javelin or something. Uh, you just have to do what you do. I can't speak very much about farmers. I've spent uh, time in farms. I know some farmers. I preached somewhere in Durham area and stayed with a farmer called Mr. Gibson one weekend a long, long time ago. And I can still see him sitting in the kitchen uh, with one leg over a big farm chair. And he used to look at me and say, buy lot, buy lot. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know if it was good or bad. That's all I remember about him. But I remember how his, how his hands were calloused. I remember how his, his countenance was bronzed. And I realized this is what he does. Routine hard work. Up when others are asleep. Still up when others have gone to sleep. A fairly challenging adventure. And a reminder in the simple picture that the Christian life is, in some dimensions, a bit of a slog. It's a long obedience, as somebody wrote in a book, in the, long di- in the same direction. It's not a few hundred meter sprints. It's a cross-country run that lasts for all of our lives. William Carey, arguably the father of modern missions, says, if we give credit for being a plodder, if he give me credit for being a plodder, He will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. Now, what an encouragement this is to many of us. Because actually, from one perspective, the picture is daunting. From another perspective, it is wonderfully encouraging. We don't enjoy the same gifts that others have been given. It's very interesting just to anticipate coming and standing here in light of all the people to whom I have listened over the years. I don't have those gifts. But hopefully I have the capacity for hard work. Gifted but lazy is a bad combination. The farmer plants, the farmer waters, It is God who's responsible for the growth. True in agriculture, true in spiritual life. The evangelist preaches, God opens blind eyes. And so Paul says in verse 7, I'd like you to think this out, and as you do so, the Lord will give you understanding. A very, very important principle, isn't it? We do the thinking, and God gives the understanding. This uh, amazing continuum of divine enabling and personal persevering. Paul is aware of his apostolic inspiration and his authority, Uh, hence verse 7. Were that not the case, it would be a rather strange thing to say. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. If I started to say that, you'd run me off the platform. No, let us think over what God says and ask him for understanding. In fact, if you're thinking about peculiar things, what about verse 8? What he goes on to say may be regarded as somewhat peculiar. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. We shouldn't imagine that Paul says this because he thinks somehow or another that Timothy is in danger of forgetting Jesus. But rather, that Jesus Christ needs to be kept as the center of everything. Uh, I said that I try not to quote from uh, 
John Stott, but here is one from a long time ago, on this very verse. He says, the church has often forgotten Jesus Christ, absorbing itself instead now in barren theological debate, now in purely humanitarian activity, now in its own petty parochial business. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. He is the risen Lord. He is the descendant or the offspring of David, as you have heard me proclaim in my gospel. My gospel is the very gospel, he says, because it is what I received from the Lord that I have also delivered to you. And so, he says, when your days are fulfilled, you will be able to look back and to realize that the enabling of the Lord Jesus has given you the opportunity to do just this. Remember Jesus Christ. Uh, Thinking of those who've been here before, think about how helpful Alec Matia has been to all of us over all the years. We bless his memory, don't we? How he got us through the Old Testament, how he taught us that the Bible was a book about Jesus, that in the Old Testament he was predicted, that in the Gospels he was revealed, in the Acts he was preached, in the Epistles he was explained, and in the book of Revelation he was expected. Fantastic. That's what he's saying here, essentially. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is of the offspring of David in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. He came with Mary. He stood at the outset of his earthly gospel ministry, and he declared, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. At the end of that time, they clothed him in a purple robe, and they twisted a crown of thorns upon his head, and they mocked him. But the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now, and the royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. He is the suffering Savior and the risen Lord. And remember, who's writing this? Saul, once Saul of Tarsus. Remember Jesus Christ. How does that happen? How does a person move from being a persecutor to a preacher? Certainly not by the ability of an individual simply to be articulate, to move with cadence and so on, but by the wonder-working power of God. I used to persecute everybody that said this, but now he says, I want you to remember Jesus Christ. It is my gospel. I was given it. I proclaimed it. And you will see, actually, that I am now, verse 9, suffering bound with chains as a criminal. He's not on the south coast of France, drinking Coca-Cola, telling telling this young fellow. No, he's in a dingy dungeon, about as hot as this, probably, but without the opportunity to walk outside. And so he is saying to him, all of these things are to be understood in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And gloriously, he says, while I am confined in this way, the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not confined. It will continue to accomplish the purposes that it is appointed it. God, I am in chains, but the word of God is not chained. Now, the reason, again, that he is as articulate in this regard is because he knows that it is vitally important that Timothy understands that Paul all the time, views the path on which he is walking in light of the path that Christ walked. 
The path of Christ was humiliation and suffering and then exaltation. Following Jesus had been a costly business. But in a very real sense, he is able to say, but even the cost that has been involved in my life has worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. You remember he says that when he writes to the church at Philippi. Even though I'm stuck in here, uh, there are things that are happening here because evangelism is taking place. And all, he says, for the sake of the elect, verse 10, so that they may obtain the salvation that is found in Jesus. So Paul has essentially lived his Christian life. Now he faces his death. He's concerned that others may share the blessings of the gospel. It is in Jesus that we find the promise of life. So he says, I want you to think along these lines. I want you to learn as a result of your thinking, and I want you to keep your focus on Jesus. And then we come to uh, the end. The saying is trustworthy. Uh, the, the last of the trustworthy sayings that we find in the pastoral epistles. Perhaps a fragment of an early hymn, nobody really knows. Calvin, fascinatingly, suggests that Paul uses this terminology, these introductory uh, statements, this is a trustworthy saying. He suggests that he employs that kind of terminology to highlight a matter that is of great importance or of one that may be hard to grasp. In other words, he sort of flashes it up, and he says, now I want you to really focus on this. Well, it's familiar material. I won't delay on it. First of all, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. The basic notion of becoming a Christian. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever for my sake and the Gospels gives it up, he will actually save it. It's the picture of baptism of going down into that pool as a picture of our grave, being buried with him emblematically, and being brought up and raised out. You have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Born that man may never more die. It's an amazing reality, isn't it? I was talking with somebody afterwards about uh, uh, coffins and funerals, and we've been reminded of it in one of these things that are coming up. Um, come and spend a beautiful weekend in the lakes thinking about your death. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging invitation, but it's a very important one. We are the only ones in the whole world that have the answer to death. Do you know of anyone else that has survived death, come through the other side? and being able to make it possible for others to join him? Exactly. Why would you be so embarrassed about telling people about this Jesus? Why would we ever be prepared to simply include him along with Buddha and Muhammad and all the rest? When will we be brave enough to actually say that Hindus believe in multiple incarnations? We believe that the incarnation was a unique and unrepeatable event. We can't both be right. Islam believes that the good will outweigh the bad. We know that our good could never outweigh the bad, but one who died as the good makes it possible for the bad to know him. We can't both be right. My Jewish friends, and I have many in Cleveland, believe that Jesus was not the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We cannot both 
be right. And therefore, the very forcefulness with kindness that comes with that is ours to convey. Not simply to gather on a great mass like this, but to be responsible for this gospel message entrusted by Paul to Timothy, to faithful people, to others and others and others and others, and here we are. And we have a short time, and we have a great mission. And it is this mission. We died with him. Therefore, we will live with him. One day we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Living for Jesus is a long journey, as we've said. And our endurance actually testifies to our life in Christ, doesn't it? You say, well, I, I hope you have got something to tell me along those lines. Yes, actually, I do. I just want to find it. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The ground of our salvation is the work of Christ, and the evidence of his work in us and through us is the fact that we just keep going. How are you doing? Well, I'm still putting one foot in front of the other. That's good. That's on the test. Enduring with him. If we deny him or if we disown him, he will also disown us. Of course, he's simply quoting Jesus, isn't he? Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. My final quote from Calvin, but this doctrine has more need of being meditated on than of being explained, writes Calvin, for the words of Christ are perfectly clear. They're sober words, aren't they? For there have been those who were here with us, who are no longer with us. Those of whom John says they have gone out from us because they were not of us. Only God knows whether they are backslidden, and we will pray them back to a confident relationship with Jesus, or that they are actually apostate and will never return. Well, I think that's why it's so wonderfully helpful that he finishes in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. One of the questions in interpreting this is, of course, is this, in his final phrase here, a further warning? In other words, is he simply saying that God will be faithful to his threats as well as to his promises? Which, of course, he must be. But is he actually distinguishing between apostasy and the fact of, I guess, every believer's experience of faltering weakness? Certainly my experience of faltering weakness. Isn't it fantastic when uh, some rainy Tuesday, you're saying to yourself, I don't think I can make it to Wednesday. And... Um, just in your reading, you come across a quote that really helps you. This helped me. This is Samuel Rutherford. Often, he writes, and often, I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. But blessed be his name. He keeps it in heaven safe 
and he stands by it always because he cannot deny himself. As the old Scottish farmer put it, he keeps me kept. He keeps me kept. Do you have any other explanation why you're still here? While you're still interested in the Bible? While you're still even with faltering steps, moving onward, moving upward? I have none except the saving power of God, that that which he has begun as a good work, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because even when I'm faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. Father, thank you that your word is fixed in the heaven. Thank you that your warnings are there to just warn us The promises are there to stir us and encourage us. And we pray that on this uh, hot, sunny day, that as we have time to do what Paul said Timothy should do, think about these things, that you will grant us understanding, so that in understanding we be believing, and in believing we may be heading on. For we humbly pray in Christ's name. Amen.